Joshua chapter 10, verse 21, And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. We read these verses from the book of Joshua, and there are people, in fact, when I first started looking at some comments on these verses, one of the thoughts was that there are many people who will look at these verses in our text and consider what Joshua did is rather cruel. That he captured these kings, that he had his soldiers put their feet on the necks of these kings, and then he killed them. I love the way the Hebrew says that he killed them and slew them. You know what I mean? That means he got after it. He really killed them. He killed them dead, all right? And then he hung their bodies up on a tree. Now, understand, these five kings had hidden themselves in this cave that they were in, all right? And all Joshua did was that he imprisoned them. Okay, you're going to hide in the cave? We'll make it a prison, and I'll set a guard over it, and we will watch you so that you don't escape. And I'm going to mention this in a moment, but what we need to understand is these kings started a war with Israel. Upon his return, Joshua gets these kings out of the cave, and again, he kills them, and he hangs their bodies up. But what we have to remember, this is battle. This is war going on. They didn't fight wars back then the way we fight wars today. And when they went to defeat an enemy, they went to defeat an enemy, not to live in peaceful coexistence with them, all right? Now, the battle that we see going on in the book of Joshua should be typical of the battle that is in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives as children of God. Not a battle with people, not a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. What are they doing in the book of Joshua? They're conquering the land. They're conquering the promised land. They are possessing the possessions that God had given to them. Now, most of us grew up, and here's where you may disagree with me, but that's okay. Most of us grew up hearing a song about crossing the Jordan River and comparing crossing the Jordan River to going into heaven, dying and going to heaven. We cross into the promised land and we've died and we've gone to heaven. On Jordan's stormy banks we stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. But I don't believe that crossing the Jordan River is typical of dying and going to heaven. And I'm going to show you why from the Word of God. What I think it is is a picture 
of a child of God living the faithful and obedient life to God. Just turn from Joshua over to the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1 says this, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, there ought to be some fear in our hearts. We ought to tremble with fear that even though God's promise of entering his rest still stands, some might seem to fail to experience God's rest or the rest of God in their lives. What's he talking about? He's talking about the peace, the rest that God gives us. The word seem here means to appear, either actually, truthfully, or uncertainly. You know, some people seem not to live the Christian life, don't they? They say they're saved, but they don't seem to live for God. And in their lives, they don't seem to have the peace that God would give a faithful child of his. So hold that thought and look down to verse 8. Verse 8 says, for if Jesus, and by the way, that word Jesus is not a reference to Jesus of the New Testament. The name Jesus in the New Testament and Joshua in the Old Testament are the same. So he's talking about Joshua, and you'll see why in just a moment. But he says, for if Jesus or Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? And then he says, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. He said, look, if entering into the promised land was God's final rest, I mean, they can just go into the promised land and there they are and, and everything's happy and everything's wonderful, then he wouldn't have had to talk about another kind of rest or another type of rest, another day of rest. And when he uses this word rest in verse 9, there remaineth a rest unto God's people, he makes up a word. The writer of Hebrews makes up a word, sapatismos. It talks about a Sabbath type of rest. It talks about a heavenly or peaceful rest. So crossing the Jordan is not a type of a heavenly rest. It's a type of a peace that God gives us, but it's not that peace that we eventually look forward to in heaven. Did crossing the Jordan give rest to the people of God? Absolutely not. They got into the land, and what did they have to do when they got into the land? They had to battle. They had to fight. They had to conquer the enemy to conquer that that land of Canaan, that promised land. Listen, we are not going to have to battle to enter heaven. Amen. You got that? <laughs> I mean, I'm as good as there right now, and so are you if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, because Jesus has fought the battle. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. We sing the song, it is finished, the battle is over. It is finished, the end of the conflict. It is finished. And then it says, and Jesus is Lord. Okay, so we don't, we're not going to have to fight to get into heaven. We're not going to have to fight an enemy. Well, does that sound like Israel in the promised land? No. They had to fight an enemy to gain that promised land. Now, verse 9 again says, Therefore remaineth a rest to the people of God. Sabbatismos, I said that. It describes, again, that special type of rest. And you look at verse 11. So it says there, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Okay? Do you have to work to enter heaven? No. The word labor means to exert oneself. It means to endeavor, to give diligence. We don't have to work. We, are, we don't enter heaven by works. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which 
we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has done the work. Jesus went to the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So heaven does not come by labor. And he says to enter into that rest that he's talking about, you got to labor. So no, I don't think crossing the Jordan and entering into Canaan land is a type of dying and going to heaven. Our battle as people who are saved, as I said a moment ago, is a spiritual battle. And it is a daily spiritual battle. It is a warfare. And we need to set out to win this war, not to peacefully coexist with the enemy, by the way. Who's the enemy? Satan's the enemy. And we don't need to peacefully coexist with our enemy. What is the warfare then for us on a daily basis? It is faithfulness to God. We studied faithfulness in Sunday school this morning. And I'm going to mention this. Those who are in there have heard it already. But you can hear it again. Isn't it amazing that God knows everything about me? He knows my failures. He knows my thoughts. He knows when I fail him. And yet God still loves me and God is still faithful to me. Amen. That is a, to me is a mind shattering thought. God is faithful. So our battle is a battle for daily obedience, a battle for daily faithfulness, a battle for trusting God to empower us to serve him, to live for him. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, Paul said, we wrestle not. Now that sounds like a fight, doesn't it? But he said this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. There's our battle. I'm not in a battle necessarily with the guy that's promoting pornography. I'm in a battle with the one behind that guy who's got him promoting the pornography. And that's Satan. There's a lot of controversy about it. I don't think there's any controversy about it. We know it goes on. Nobody wants to admit it, especially those folks out in Hollywood. And I'll be honest with you, I'm glad they're all on strike out there right now. I'm just loving it. I don't care if you all lose your jobs out there. But there's a lot of controversy about this movie, Sound of Freedom. The trafficking of children for sexual purposes. There shouldn't be a bit of controversy about that, folks. We know it goes on. It ought to be illegal. The children ought to be protected. I'm against the guy who's behind that, and that is Satan. Until we get right with God in this world and in this nation, we're going to have that battle for a long, long time. Galatians 5, 17. We're familiar with this verse. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary one to the other, so that we cannot do the things that you should. Why do I have such a battle serving God? Because I live in the flesh. Why do you have such a battle serving God? Because you live in the flesh. And the flesh does not want to serve God. The flesh does not want to be faithful to God. The flesh wants to do what the flesh wants to do. But we have a spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and he wants to serve God. And so there is this battle going on, and daily we battle with all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life which is not of the Father, but is of the world. So we have a battle. And that's what Israel had to do. So the battle is faithfulness, service to God, just doing and being what I ought to be as a child of God. What was Israel supposed to do 
when they entered the promised land. They were supposed to get rid of the inhabitants of the land. Whether they drove them out or whether they destroyed them. God said at one point of the Amalekites, we talked about this in Sunday school, God said to the Amalekites, don't even let their animals live. Just kill them all. Kill their dogs. You know, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry. I'm a dog lover too. But God said just destroy them all. Why? Well, because the inhabitants were paganistic idol worshipers who denied God. And even if they acknowledged him, they only acknowledged him as one of many gods. And so they had no relationship with God. So even though Joshua's actions may seem cruel, okay, what we ought to recognize is that Joshua is just following God's instructions. Amen. Joshua is just doing what God told him to do. And you know what that teaches us? That teaches us that we ought to desire a victory over sin in our lives. And we ought to deal with sin in our own lives in a very drastic and dramatic fashion. I don't want to sin against God. I do, but I don't want to. And when I do, I want to deal with it. I want to, it's like a cancer. I want to cut it out right now. Get rid of it. Because I don't want it in my life anymore. In the book of Romans, the seventh chapter, the apostle Paul is in essence defending the Mosaic law because he says in verse 13, was then that which is good made death unto me. Talking about the law. Remember what he said? He said, it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. If the law had not said, thou shalt not covet, I wouldn't have known I was a sinner because I was covetous apparently, right? And so it was good to me. So is that sin? He said, God forbid, don't even think that way. The law is good. In fact, one way that you might be able to convince somebody that's lost that they're a sinner is to just show them from the word of God, here's what God's word says about sin and you do it. Do you ever tell a lie? Well, sometimes. Well, guess what? That's sin. You're a sinner. Have you ever lusted after someone or something? The Bible says that's sin. And so you're a sinner. So we could use the Mosaic Law to show people that they're sinners and then show them all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Very, very clearly, very simply. But Paul says this, he says, don't even think that the law was not good, but sin, that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become, and get this, here it comes, exceeding sinful. Paul said sin needs to be exceedingly sinful to us. I think we live in a day when it's easy to overlook sin in our lives and think, well, it's just, I know what the excuse is. Well, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace and therefore I just sin. We ought to be exceeding sinful. Exceedingly sinful. I don't want it in my life. It ought to bother us to sin against the God who loved us and gave himself for us that we might have everlasting life. Amen. Now, I don't have any points to this message. I told you, I just sat down and this is the message that I got last Sunday, okay? 
These five kings that Joshua battled, if you go back to Joshua, the 10th chapter now, and the first five verses, what you're going to find is these five kings had formed a confederation to fight against Joshua and the Israelites, and they did so by attacking Gibeon. Now, you remember Joshua had made a deal with the Gibeonites, we'll protect you. You'll be our servants, we'll protect you. And so they attack Gibeon, and the Gibeonites send for help. They make war against Gibeon, and Joshua sends the help. And then you start looking at verse 10, and it says, The Lord discomfited them. Who won the battle? God did. The Lord discomfited them, talking about the enemy, before Israel, and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon, and smote them to Azekah and to Makeda. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. God sent a hailstorm. I'll win the battle. I'll show you that it's me that's winning the battle, not you. And God sent a hailstorm. And then it says in verse 11, the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Give God the glory. God has won the battle. God sent hailstones down upon them. So verse 12, then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand thou still upon Gibeon and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon and the sun stood still. You want to talk about daylight saving time? The sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down about a whole day. God just stopped the sun. God just held the sun in place. The day's not advancing until you defeat your enemies. And there was no day like, verse 14 says, there was no day like that before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings, here it is, fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. So God's fighting the battle. The kings that have decided to fight against Israel go and run and hide themselves in the cave. Don't blame Joshua for cruelty. They hid themselves. And so all Joshua did was just say, okay, roll stones in front of that cave and we've got some prisoners. And we've got the prisoners who brought this battle to us. See, sadly, we have folks today who live in this 20 and 21st century idea of appeasement of the enemy. Now, you may not agree with that, but I think that's, that's absolutely true. We just want to appease our enemies. And there's some folks who wouldn't even try to win a battle if it cost them everything they had. They'd just roll over and play dead. But you can't do that with sin. You can't roll over and play dead. There's a quote that I love. General Douglas MacArthur said, In war, there is no substitute for victory. And I agree with that. But listen, folks, in the war with sin... There is no substitute for victory. We can apply that right here. Now you may disagree with what I'm about to say. I'm not waxing political. I think I'm waxing patriotic. I get to give an opinion occasionally and I'm going to give one. 
Right now, I'm warning you. We pulled out of Vietnam and we left many of the bodies and lives of some of our fine young men over in a foreign nation. Amen. South Korea hasn't fallen yet, but they, they and we have to put up with a little short dictator with a bad haircut that makes life miserable for the people that he rules over. We pulled out of Afghanistan and we left troops and we left weapons behind. We have forgotten in America today what victory is. And we have people in positions of leadership today that would make an agreement with socialism and with communism just to get along, just to appease. Folks, that's not victory. We've got a system that's worked for the better part of 250 years. And it still works. We need to learn what victory is both in our nation and in our lives as children of God. God did not send the Israelites into Canaan to get along with pagan idol worshipers. God sent them in there to drive them out. These are the same people that Romans 1 talks about that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. And the scripture goes on to say, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And these same folks exist in America today and in our world today. They're listed in Romans 1 beginning in verse 24. They're full of all unrighteousness and fornication and wickedness and covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. God does not compromise in the battle with sin. Amen. We may, but God doesn't. In fact, God hates sin so much. You know how much God hates sin? Here's how much God hates sin. And God does hate sin. You know, God loves everybody. God loves the sinner, but God hates the sin. Here's how much God hates sin. He said, I'll take on human form. And I'll go to that earth. And I'll live among them. A perfect life. And then I will willingly go to the cross. And I will die there as the sacrifice for sin. That if anybody will turn to me in repentance and by faith. They can become an overcomer. They can be saved. They don't have to go to hell. And they can live a faithful life. This nation has lost a lot of good men and women in the battle for liberty. But folks ultimate liberty is seen at a hill called Golgotha outside the city of Jerusalem in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if I have points, here's point two. Verse 21, when Joshua returned to the cave at Makkedah, he took these five kings out of the cave. And I believe we can read between the lines. I mean, it's going to be hard for his men to put their feet on their necks if they're not laying on the ground. Okay? So Joshua takes them out of the cave. He makes them lie on the ground and then he has his soldiers come up one by one and put their foot on the neck of each of these kings. What's he doing? What he's doing is he's teaching them superiority. You've won the victory. 
When you can stand with your foot on the neck of a king who has battled against you, you have defeated that king. Amen. You win. Now, I don't know if this is considered animal cruelty today, but I was told years ago that if you want to teach a dog to learn who the master is, what you do is you lay down on the floor with him, put your neck over his neck, and you lay there long enough, that dog will learn, I'm not the master. I have used that. I don't deny it. Okay. Now, I didn't do it with Cornelius. All right. He just came to us obedient. Well, mostly obedient. Okay. But it's a, it's a, a show of superiority. And in verse 25, we're told what Joshua is teaching. I'm going to make an application of all this in a few minutes. Just hang on. But we're told in verse 25 what Joshua said to his men. He said to them, fear not. I mean, you're standing there with your foot on this king's neck and Joshua saying, fear not. Don't be dismayed. Be strong. Be of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies whom ye fight. And here's what he's showing them. It wasn't your strength that did this. It wasn't your superiority in battle that did this. Remember the hailstones? Remember the sun standing still? It is God whom you trust and whom you are to obey and you trust him and you can have the victory. Amen. Sadly, I think many of God's people live so-so lives. Sort of victorious and, and sort of not at times. Think about this. And here's the title of the message. Jesus has already put his foot on Satan's neck. Amen. Satan is a defeated foe. There is no reason that Satan or any of his demons ought to have a victory in the life of a child of God. Amen. You know why we don't get the victory? We're depending on ourselves. I'm going to live the Christian life. I'm going to live for the Lord. I'm going to be faithful in saying, Lord, just give me the victory. I'm, I'm trusting you. Sometimes I think we've got more smarts than the devil. And I tell you what, he's pretty smart. He's not a dummy. And he's pretty smart and he knows what we will fall for. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. He's talking about, remember, there was a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was having illicit relations with either his mother or stepmother and he told the church, you deal with him and you put him outside the church. You don't fellowship with him. Now this man has come back. He's made things right. He wants to get right with God. He wants to get right with the church. Paul says, forgive him. Forgive him. Take him back. I forgive him. And here's why he said that. I'll go back to verse 10 for just a second. For your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of his devices. We're not supposed to be. You know one of the devices that Satan uses against God's people? He gets us to hold a grudge. We think somebody did something to us and we, we hold a grudge. Or we think I'll get even. I don't get mad. I just get even, right? That's Satan working. That's one of his devices. And he says we're not ignorant of his devices or his purposes. 
If you're a child of God, and I think I'm speaking to children of God today, Satan's chief desire, his device, his purpose is to get you to live in such a way that you deny Christ, get you to live in such a way you deny the Bible, get you to live in such a way that you deny the Lord's church, deny God and living, and cause lost friends and family members to say something like this, well, I'm just as good as they are. Or if that's what being a Christian is, I don't want any part of it. Or my favorite one, there's too many hypocrites in the church, because there are. Ephesians 6, 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word wiles talks about methods. It talks about his trickery. Satan is very methodical. He is willing to wait us out. He is willing to put things in our lives, in our minds, in our thoughts, and just let them lay there and get us away from God. But as I said, Jesus already has his foot on Satan's neck. Satan thought Calvary was a great victory. Hey, I hung him on the cross. Look what I did. But listen to what God said to Satan in Genesis 3, verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Calvary may have been the bruising of the heel of Jesus, but I tell you what, it was the crushing of the head of Satan. His foot is on Satan's neck. I remember what General Norman Schwarzkopf said in that first campaign against the Iraqi soldiers in Kuwait. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill it the way you do a snake. He said, we're going to cut the head off and then we're going to kill it. And you know what? I think about that every time I read these verses there in the book of Genesis. And that's what we need to do concerning Satan. Cut his head off and kill him. Jesus has already done that and Satan's a defeated foe. And so I still have to point out that Satan still deceives men. That's why from this pulpit and in our daily lives we need to witness of Jesus Christ and we need to preach and teach the truth of the word of God. Nobody has to go to hell. I'll say it again. If people will simply turn to God in repentance and by faith apply the shed blood of Jesus, they can be saved. And for those of us who are saved, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Got that? Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. I pray that I never hear a member of this church say, the devil made me do it. If you're a child of God, the devil can't make you do anything. He can't. He can tempt, he can try, he can work on the lust of our flesh, but he cannot force a child of God to do anything. You know why we sin against God? We choose to. We make a decision. What did he say? To whom you yield yourself servants to obey. That's whose servants you are. And that's exactly what we do. Now, third point. Let's go back to our text right quickly. Joshua chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. Look at what it says. 
And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening and it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the caves wherein they had been hid and laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain until this very day. Joshua put an end to the enemy. Not only did he slay them, he then hung their dead bodies up on five trees. Well, now what in the world was the purpose in all of that? Isn't that cruel? Well, some might think so. But you know, Joshua's a military man. And he's offering to his soldiers a very vivid illustration of the victory that they had just won. These are the kings that brought the battle to you. This is the enemy. They have been defeated. Look at verse 27. And laid great stones in the cave's mouth which remain unto this very day. Now, stones are plentiful over there, okay? And stones were used to build monuments. When they crossed the Jordan River, what did they do? They piled up stones to mark the place of the crossing of the Jordan River. This is a reminder. This is a remembrance. God brought you across this river. And so they let the stones just stay there. Many other things they did. And so Joshua just piles up stones in front of this cave and makes it a place of memorial. We have in our nation reminders of both great victories and great tragedies. I think of the World War II memorial at Pearl Harbor. What a sad time that was. And I'm sure it's we like it because of history, but it reminds us of a sad time in our nation's history. I think of the 9-1-1 memorial in New York City. We were attacked on our own land. and You know, I, I, I've got to go back, being a Texan, I've got to go back to the Alamo. It became a battle cry, didn't it? Remember the Alamo. But we have all of those reminders. But we have reminders of victory and liberty also. What about the Liberty Bell? We claimed and won our independence. What about Lady Liberty and New York Harbor that greets so many people who want to come here and, and enjoy the liberty that we have? But the greatest reminder of our liberty and of our victory, as I said a moment ago, is a hill outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem where an old rugged cross stood and our Savior was nailed to that cross. And folks, that's our victory. Amen. That's a reminder of the liberty that we have. There's a tomb nearby. Now, obviously, I don't know because I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. I don't know if these are the actual places they'll tell you they are. I trust where they say Calvary is. Gordon's Golgotha, they call it. There's a tomb nearby that. They say when they found it, they excavated it, sent everything in that tomb to England to be examined, and there was not one human hair found in that tomb. Well, if that's not the tomb, guess what? There's one just as empty that had once held the body of Jesus over there. Nearby that tomb is a little garden. Sort of fits the description in the scripture. And I tell you what, to be able to stand in that little garden, have a worship service in that little garden, be able to stand there and look and see Golgotha and look and see an empty tomb and sing because he lives. Why are you doing it? I it would just do something to you. 
Listen, if you're a child of God, and this is the point of this, if you don't get anything else, this is the point of this message. If you're a child of God, you have the victory. It was purchased at Calvary. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you which you have of God and you're not your own for you're bought with a price. Therefore, because of what's said, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. See, Joshua wanted his men to see very clearly that God had given them the victory and that God would give them future victories. What did he say? Don't fear. Don't be dismayed. All they had to do was go forth in obedience to God and fight in obedience to him. And our Lord wants us to realize that we're victorious. And we are conquerors through him. Romans chapter 8 verse 37. Nay in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Maybe I should have given a different title to this message. I would just like the title of Jesus with his foot on Satan's neck. Maybe I should have said we have the victory. I don't know. But you know what? We need to live like we've won the victory. Amen. Again, I'm afraid because of all that's going on in the world, all that's going on in this country, so many of God's people live sort of a defeated mindset. The Lord's churches are that. But we can't do much. We're going to stand for the truth, and most of religion in America doesn't care about the truth, and so we just have to put up being weak and small and so forth, and we'll just sort of live out and, and hang, hook in and hang on till the Lord comes that way. Don't give in to Satan. Don't let him stop you from being a faithful servant and a faithful witness of Christ. One of my most favoriteest, okay? Verses of Scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That word fear is moral cowardice. That word fear is timidity. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love for the souls of men and for one another and of a sound mind. That's what God has given. So if you're afraid to completely commit your way to the Lord, that's not of God. Satan's working on you. And if I should be addressing anyone who does not have this confidence, you say, preacher, it's easy for you to have this. Oh, really? You think it really is? If you don't have this kind of confidence because you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge with you to turn to him today, accept him as Savior. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It says the wages of sin is death. It says whoever is not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. But it says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It says again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not a works lest any man should boast. You can trust the one who has his foot on Satan's neck. He has defeated the serpent. 
He has defeated the devil. And he will lead us. All we have to do is follow him. I told the Sunday school class in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians we're given God's order for the home. Christ ought to be the head over the man and then the wife is there as the the, uh, help meet in the home. I said the children have the easiest job in the world. Just have to do what mom and dad say. Well guess what? We're children of God. And the easiest job in the world is just do what God says. Among those things is that we're to be witnesses of Him. Now bring that up because I wanted to share this quote that I saw just last night. Charles Spurgeon said it, but I agree with it. If you have no desire, this is quoting Spurgeon, if you have no desire to see other people saved, you are not saved. You need to be. Because see, if you're a child of God, you want to take people to heaven with you. Amen. Family members, friends, acquaintances, just people you run into on a daily basis. You don't want to go to heaven by yourself. You want to take people with you. And we can do it. We just have to trust the one who has his foot on Satan's neck.